welcome to Ghost Stories of Canada. My name is Zach, and I'll be your host this summer as we delve into folklore from coast to coast to coast. This is the summer 2019 podcast of Discover the Past Ghostly Walks, based out of Victoria, British Columbia. My goal is to collect and relay the best ghost stories I can find from each province and territory. This means I'll be searching through books, web pages, and videos, as well as reaching out to other tour companies across the country to gather stories. You can expect a new episode to be released every Monday and Thursday starting July 1st and ending mid-August. Welcome to Episode 7, Manitoba. Our set of stories today covers a wide variety of ghosts and experiences. We'll range from premonitions to retrocognition, from feelings that give one goosebumps to full-on apparitions and poltergeist activity, and from documented historical accounts to the stuff of legends. Manitoba is a fertile ground for all sorts of paranormal encounters, not just in the big city, but perhaps even more so in small, isolated communities. The smaller communities, while quaint, provide fewer places to escape from what's bothering you, be it ghostly or otherwise. That is especially true if you're in a house far out in the middle of nowhere, which is, of course, where we'll be stopping first on our journey today. Victoria, some of us ghostwalk guides often joke about the little plaques put on old buildings, saying the big H in heritage really stands for haunted. There's not an old office or hotel or bed and breakfast around these parts that doesn't have a ghost or two. That's why you've got to keep your wits about you whenever you decide to stay in an old building. It's exactly this sort of building that still stands on the shores of Lake Manitoba in the Delta Marsh. Although floods in 2011 and 2014 have destroyed most of the buildings around it, the old Mallard Lodge has stayed up, even if it's boarded up and abandoned for now while the government still thinks about what to do with it. It was built in the 1930s by Donald Bain, about 26 kilometers north of Portage la Prairie. Bain loved to hunt ducks, so the name Mallard Lodge was a fitting one. It was there that he hosted all sorts of guests, his lodge had become a true destination, quiet and secluded compared to busy city life. The caretaker of the property, Murray, became synonymous with life at the lodge itself. He was always about, doing one odd job or another. He loved his work and was quite excellent at it, to speak nothing of his devotion. He worked day after day right up until his death. His body was found in the lodge one morning, with no foul play suspected, despite the name of the establishment. In 1962, Bain died, and the lodge stood empty with talks of destruction looming over it. 
it managed to survive until 1966, when the University of Manitoba turned the property into an ecological research station. Once it opened up, they discovered something would meddle with the faucets and the lights. The thermostat would adjust itself to extreme temperatures. Doors would open and close on their own. The students and staff grew to know the ghost of Murray rather well, and there was no real fear of him. Along with the old caretaker, there were reports of dogs running up and down the stairs or wandering inside the building. The dogs would be there one moment and gone the next. Needless to say, the station prohibited dogs inside the building at all times. These were Bane's dogs, still roaming the halls after their owner unwittingly ended them by feeding them large amounts of chocolate. One rather uncomfortable experience was when Michael, a student and a very level-headed and scientific young man, retired to bed but couldn't fall asleep. He sat up with the intention of grabbing a flashlight and a book, and noticed a skull looking back from the end of his bed. It rose up, showing the rest of its body draped in a cloak, and floated over him and out of the room. No one knew where on earth that ghost had come from, but most prayed they would never have the opportunity to find out firsthand. Another experience that was well documented came from one of the students, Adrian, and his fiance Kelly. They had been attending a showing of Les Mis Saturday night in Winnipeg back in 1991, but Adrian was tasked with doing the weather at the research station early the next morning. His plan was for them to make the two-hour drive up after the show, settle in for the night, and wake up early for his work. Well, they were delayed in leaving Winnipeg and didn't end up approaching Mallard Lodge until about 2.30 in the morning. The driveway was empty, as those two were to be the only ones staying at the lodge overnight. As such, Adrian and Kelly were especially startled when the bell by the driveway began to ring in a dull, low sound as they pulled up. There was no one next to it, but the bell was tilted sideways as if someone was pulling on the line from the lodge. It kept ringing. Adrian had never seen it ring before. Even in stormy weather, the bell was too heavy to ring in the wind. As they parked their car, Kelly told Adrian she saw someone at the lodge. He turned his head and they both looked up at the window of room three. There was a light on and a person in the window with his right hand up against the glass. The bell kept ringing. Adrian turned to Kelly and instructed her to wait in the car. If it was a thief, he was going to find out. He made for the lodge, but the window upstairs went dark. Somewhat sheepishly, he turned back to Kelly, who had never been up to the lodge before. I guess I probably shouldn't say this, he remarked, but this place is supposed to be haunted. With that, he walked up to the lodge, unlocked the door, and let himself in, leaving Kelly all alone in the dark driveway. Smooth. Inside, Adrian checked every room, but they were all locked. He listened carefully the whole time for footsteps upstairs, but heard nothing on the old wooden floorboards. He ascended to the second floor with his flashlight and inspected the whole place. Not only was room three empty, but the whole house was. From the upstairs window, he could see Kelly out in the car and hear the bell still ringing. That reminded him. There were only two spots from where a person could ring the bell the kitchen, and the main room. Adrian went down to investigate. 
neither string was being pulled. Finally, Adrian invited his fiancée into Mallard Lodge. They made one more check of the building and found nothing out of place. They deduced, perhaps rather hoped, that it had been Murray. After all, nobody was supposed to be there that night, which was rare, and it meant the lodge was left unguarded. Room 3 had the best vantage point from which to survey the property. Perhaps it was Murray taking care of the old place, keeping a watchful eye over the lodge in case of break-ins. Whatever or whoever it may have been, it made for a very sleepless night at Mallard Lodge for Kelly and for Adrian. set of three stories starts in a smaller town, ventures briefly into Winnipeg, and then heads back out into the prairies again. Each of the three becomes more obscure than the one before it, starting off with a very precise account and a known figure, then ending off in an experience that simply bewildered the two men who were involved in it. Again, Manitoba gives us plenty to work with, so let's dive in. to imagine yourself going out to look for ghosts. I won't use the term ghost hunt here because I find that term somewhat problematic, but imagine that you're out alone or maybe with one other person and your intention is to, in one way or another, experience a ghost. Where did your imagination take you? What location were you at? I'm guessing a good number of you thought of a cemetery, and if you didn't think of a cemetery, you might be thinking of one now. Everyone associates ghosts with cemeteries, and why shouldn't they? Cemeteries are quite plainly plots of land packed with dead people. Here's the catch. Cemeteries don't tend to be very haunted. I'm not saying no cemetery is haunted, and I'm not saying there aren't cemeteries that are extremely haunted. There are. Take Greyfriars Kirkyard in Edinburgh, for example. But as a whole, cemeteries don't tend to have a ton of ghosts. That's simply because nothing happens in cemeteries. There are no murders or sudden deaths. There are very few traumatic incidents. Nothing that would produce ghosts. With that being said, you're probably already thinking of a cemetery you know that has a ghost story or two. Don't worry, I'm not here to tell you they're wrong. In fact, I'm here to add to your collection. In 1971, George and Trish were on a little road trip up to Rapid City, north of Brandon. They were hoping to find the grave of Frederick Philip Grove, a well-known Canadian author who died in 1948. Why were they doing this? Well, they were both English teachers and found his personal life rather interesting, so they went on a little pilgrimage. It was calmly snowing as they drove down the highway to Rapid City. They kept their eyes alert for the graveyard, which was supposed to be a mile out of town, but their watchfulness proved unfruitful as they pulled up to the town centre. This was in the days before you could do a quick Google search on your phone at any coffee shop, so they got out of their car for a little stroll down the block. They asked passers-by if they knew where the grave of Frederick Philip Grove was. The responses they got were simply blank stares. Apparently, Grove wasn't that well-known after all. 
It was clear they weren't going to get any answers in town, so George and Trish got back into their car and made for the road home. It was on this return trip that Trish exclaimed suddenly, and George pulled over to the side of the highway. Trish had spotted the cemetery. They hurried over to the snow-covered plots and began searching the fancier headstones for the name of their beloved author. The snow began coming down more heavily, and it was getting darker. None of the markers they saw bore Grove's name. A little disappointed, they decided to call it quits and make their way back to the cemetery gate. That's when they noticed a young woman walking down the highway toward them. What could a young woman be doing out in the snow like this in the middle of nowhere? She met them at the gate, all bundled in winter clothes. "'Can I help you?' she asked. Well, they were hoping to find the grave of Frederick Philip Grove, but they had searched most of the plots and come up with nothing. Did she know where it was? As luck would have it, she did indeed know its exact location, and she pointed them toward it. What a delightful surprise to have come across a person right at the graveyard who knew precisely where Grove was buried when all these people in town had no idea. George and Trish went over, saw the word Grove imprinted on the stone, and turned back to thank the young woman. All they could see was the falling snow. The thought of a ghost didn't even cross their mind. George and Trish were certainly very perplexed, though. There was nowhere she could have gone in the moment it took them to walk over to the burial plot. Visibility was limited at the time, but not that limited. They could still see some distance around them. No cars had passed, and there were no buildings around. It certainly was fortunate that she had been able to help them to a rather obscure location, but they were sad that they had not been able to properly thank her. No, they had no clue as to what became of her, and again, despite being in the cemetery, they never even considered that she might have been a ghost. That is, until months later, when George read about Frederick Philip Grove's daughter, who died as a young teenager, and who was buried right next to him. This rather quirky story comes from 1898 at a train station outside of Winnipeg. A solitary traveler was waiting on the train track for his scheduled engine. Due to the poor weather conditions, the train was running late by almost an hour. The traveler was left to enjoy himself in the frigid winter air, while snow kicked up and swirled around him. Minute after minute seemed to tick by agonizingly slow, with his blood chilled to the bone, and no one around to keep him company. Indeed, there were no other buildings in sight at all, just track leading off in its two directions, and a blanket of sheer white encompassing the difference. Just as the traveler was wondering if he was going to freeze to death, what seemed like a very real possibility, the train suddenly appeared down the line. It came into view so quickly that the traveler jumped off the track in fear of being hit, although upon closer inspection the engine was still some distance away. He began waving for it to slow down and let him on, and it stopped about 150 feet off. 
Well, the frozen traveler waited no longer, and, grabbing his travel bag, ran as fast as his numb legs would carry him down the track toward the warmth of the waiting coaches. He kept his eyes on the prize, his vision fixated on the passenger cars which were just there waiting for him. And then they weren't. In fact, the whole train had disappeared in a snap. The traveler skidded to a halt, whirling about with the snow, looking this way and that for his comfy, warm seats in the train. There was nothing in sight, save for the track and the blanket of snow. Stunned, he kept spinning around, thinking that he had somehow gotten turned around with the wind. That's when he saw it. The very same train, with cars in tow, sailing through the snowbanks off in the distance, where no tracks were laid. He rubbed his eyes, thinking of the desert mirages he had read about in stories, but the train remained and sped off out of sight. Feet planted firmly on the ground, the traveler rooted himself to the spot and did not budge until his train truly arrived, and he made real sure it was nice and solid before climbing on and finally out of the icy winter air. was a skeptic, despite a past lined with ghost stories. Although he was born in England, he had spent some time in various places around Canada. It was in the Baie de Chaleur in New Brunswick that he and a few others had made fun of his brother-in-law for claiming to see a flaming ship out in the water. Remember back to the PEI episode in the flaming ship in the Northumberland Strait? Mike also had an experience with a forerunner while staying in Amherst, Nova Scotia. Lying in bed, he heard hard knocking on the outside of the house, but ignored it and went to sleep. The next day, his wife's grandfather, who was staying with them, died in his sleep during an afternoon nap. So yes, Mike was a skeptic, but despite this, he and his friend Barry were all too ready to share an experience they had while working out in Portage La Prairie, when they were prompted to share it, of course. It was back in the early 1980s. Mike and Barry were working as members of the armed forces, but had taken up part-time shifts together at the local campground at Norkey Beach, patrolling the park. At around 2 o'clock a.m. one summer morning, they were locking up the front gate and getting ready to head home for the night. They parked the campground truck at the shack by the gate, and Mike began to check the mileage for the day. That's when Barry muttered, Great, now we have to deal with this turkey. Mike looked up and saw a person walking down the highway toward them. He had a camp roll on his back, with a high collar and a floppy hat, and some sort of dark tan coat. They couldn't be sure the park lights were kind of bluish. In addition to all that, he looked quite haggard, like he had been walking all day, and his progress was very slow. Mike sighed. Both he and Barry were exhausted and just wanted to go home. Barry said he would go up and address the man and got out of the truck. Mike quickly finished checking the mileage, and then he hopped out as well. While Barry walked directly over to the wanderer, Mike looped around the other side of the shack to cut him off. You get all sorts of people wandering the prairie streets at night in that area. Just to be safe, it was better to split up. That way each would have a backup in case of an incident. It was an old tactic they knew well from the forces. Mike took out his flashlight and walked through the cool air around the shack. 
just as he was turning the corner, he heard a man's voice say, Can I help you? And a flashlight beam fell right on him, blinding him temporarily. Barry, cut it out, said Mike. The flashlight beam dropped from Mike's face. There, looking back at him, was his partner Barry. Where did the third man go? They quickly scanned around. In the bushes, through the trees, through the shack windows, even up on the roof, but found no one. There was nowhere this wanderer could have gone. They triple-checked everywhere, even shining their lights up into their trees in case they had a climber, but no one was there. They walked back over to the truck, too freaked out to say what they really thought out loud. They managed a rough good night and went their separate ways. The next day, they were back at the front gate and went inside the shack to tell the girls working at reception what had happened early that morning. The girls had no solution for them. They, too, were just as puzzled as Mike and Barry were. That night, at 9 o'clock p.m., Mike and Barry left the shack to do their evening route in the park. The sun had set, and night was quickly falling. When they announced their departure, the girls looked back at them in horror. "'You're not going to leave us alone, are you?' they cried. Clearly, they also had a sneaking suspicion as to what the traveling fellow last night had been. What if he came back? Well, yes, Mike and Barry were indeed going to leave them. They had a job to do, and they closed the door behind them. Silence followed as the girls looked at one another inside the shack. That time of night hardly saw anyone come out to registration, so they sat there at their desks, trying to keep their minds off of any wanderers outside. But of course, their eyes kept glancing up at the dark windows, afraid of who they might see looking back from outside. One of the girls couldn't shake the creepy feeling that something was out there, and even walked up to the window to peer out into the night air. There, just outside the shack, silhouetted against the dark sky, she saw... The outline of trees and bushes. No ghosts. It would stay like that for the rest of the night, too. No one ever reported seeing that wanderer again. While the sighting of the train along the prairies can be construed as retrocognition, seeing moments from the past, our next story focuses more on premonition, which is a little like a forerunner, but with a clearer and more purposeful message. After that, we'll head back out to the waterfront to catch up with a legendary expedition that never made it that far. And finally, we'll say that's it, back to Winnipeg for our penultimate story. It was a breezy spring evening in April of 1912, and a little bit chilly. Reverend Charles Morgan sat down in his office chair to rest his feet. It had been a busy day with a few services already in the books, plus one more to go in an hour. He was the humble minister of Rosedale Methodist Church in Winnipeg, and took great care of his services. He had everything ready for the final service of the day, right down to the hymn numbers displayed at the front. It was as he leaned back in his chair and closed his eyes that a number flashed into his mind. Three digits, one right after the other. 
He opened his eyes, puzzled, and he looked around. That was weird. He closed his eyes again and, after a moment, saw the number again, the same three digits as before. Acting on a hunch, he pulled out his hymnal and leafed through it until he came to the corresponding page for the number he had just seen. It was a hymn he did not recognize, and a tune he had never heard before. Shrugging it off, he closed the hymnal and decided to change into his robe. The service began and ran just as the evening services always did, but Father Charles could not shake the feeling that the number was important. He sensed that he had correctly interpreted that it had signified a hymn number and was now feeling that something was urging him to incorporate it into the service. The dismissal was fast approaching, and he was nearing his last chance to act on his impulse. Breaking from the usual routine, he instructed the congregation to turn to the new page number for the final hymn. The organ began to play, and the parishioners joined in somewhat feebly. They found it a bit odd, as these prairie folks had never sung Eternal Father Strong to Save before, and they didn't know the melody either. Eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm doth find the restless wave, who bids the mighty ocean deep its own appointed bounds to keep. Oh, hear us when we cry to thee, for those in peril on the sea. See? Somewhat strange lyrics for a city far from any ocean. That night, the congregation and clergy all went home humming the new tune and slipped quietly into their comfy beds for a good night's sleep. All the while, thousands of miles away, the Titanic was slipping beneath the freezing ocean waves, sending over a thousand souls into eternal sleep that very night. Wednesday, March 9th, in 1898, held the beginning of an extraordinary string of events. Five men were staying in a fishing camp near Red Deer Point, not far from Winnipegosa Station. At 9 o'clock p.m. that night, all five were seated around the table talking quietly when they began to hear scratching and rasping at their window. They peered out into the darkness, but saw nothing and yet the sounds continued for three hours, along with occasional scraping and thumping on the ceiling, as if something were being dragged across the roof. The following night yielded something different, the sound of a bell being rung in the stable. The men were curious. Had some traveler come upon their cabin in the night and needed shelter? Or was something out there trying to lure them out into the darkness? 
two men went out to investigate while the others covered their backs. There was no sign of anyone. The next night they heard the bell rung closer to their cabin, and the night after directly in the cabin, but no one was sure where. The night it was heard near the cabin, but not yet inside, was Friday, although the bell seemed to be of least importance that night. On Friday evening, tin dishes suddenly came crashing down from the walls and shelves all over the floor. Boots and shoes were thrown about the entranceway. One man's hat came flying off its hook on the wall and landed on his head, only to be thrown off moments later. While the author of the account was writing down all this amazing activity, the paper he was using was ripped out of his hands, and twice a large German sock was thrown at his head. Things settled down by 10.30 that night. The author had a more peaceful time and place to write. It was sitting there in the quiet lamplight with his papers that he felt a small bump on the table. The light flickered in the lamp. The writer paused and put down his pen, curious. That's when the light went out and all hell broke loose. The windows scraped and rattled, the cabin shook, the roof noise became aggressive and violent, and items were thrown all about the room. The next morning, the author was quick to post his account to the Winnipeg Free Press and ask for anyone's opinion on what this was or how to solve it. The newspaper editor published it and credited the disturbances to something called the Andre Ghost. Stories about the Andre Ghost were in full swing all around the north at the time. For Dr. Solomon August Andre, the Scandinavian balloonist, had died only in the past year. He had been fascinated with the idea of crossing over the North Pole via a hot air balloon and landing in Alaska. So many men had failed to traverse the North by land or sea, so Andre figured he could best them all by simply flying over the ice and snow. He was a confident and handsome man, although in my opinion his bushy mustache did him no favors and he had a background in technology, so he and three others set off in their hot air balloon in 1897 for their epic journey. Dr. Andre thought he had prepared for every possible emergency, and yet they disappeared and lost communication shortly after their departure. It was learned decades later that they crashed on Kvitoya near Svalbard after three days of travel, but kept in good spirits by shooting bears to create plenty of food to stay alive. They had tried to make a sled and a boat to continue traveling, but after some difficulty they elected to begin setting up an ice cabin for the winter. They never finished it, possibly dying from exposure or by carbon monoxide poisoning from their stove. Thirty-three years later their camp was found, marked by a bleached white skull that lay there dreadfully smiling. Those who found the camp were able to piece together the events of the ill-fated expedition by collecting the diaries off the skeletons and developing perfectly preserved film rolls from their cameras. One of the men died with his fiancée's photograph in his pocket. The woman in question died decades later, but requested the ashes of her heart be buried alongside him. Back in 1897, though, the disappearance of the Andre crew sparked worldwide reports of his ghost. It was presumed that he had perished, but no one knew where. Surely the presence of his ghost would alert them to the body's location. Of course, we now know that they crashed near Svalbard, nowhere near Winnipegosa Station and the poltergeist-filled cabin. Andre had never even been close by. 
so it couldn't have been the famous Andre ghost haunting that cabin as the newspaper editor suggested. That begs the question, though. If it wasn't Dr. Solomon August Andre and his crew torturing the poor souls in the fishing camp, who or what was it? Hotel Fort Gary in Winnipeg is a daunting edifice which from the outside a person might simply assume it's haunted. The building has similar elements, after all, to other hotels such as the Hotel Vancouver, the Chateau Laurier, the Royal York, the Empress, the Chateau Frontenac, and the Banff Springs Hotel, all old railroad hotels and all very haunted places. A simple Google search of Hotel Fort Gary will yield one of the top results as what floor of the Hotel Fort Gary is haunted? Even famous movie star and ghostbuster Bill Murray has stayed there, although apparently he didn't make any effort to get rid of the spirits, which defeats the point of having a ghostbuster visit your hotel. Because of its long history and its lack of ghostbusting, the hotel plays host to many a ghost within its walls. A frequent guest arrived to check in at the front desk and asked for a specific room. The assistant manager, who was attending the desk at the time, did not find this request unusual, as many people request specific rooms. Often, people will have stayed there as a child, had their honeymoon there, or just want a certain view. However, the room in question was a very curious choice. It was by no means fancy or special, and it had a particularly lackluster view from the windows. The assistant manager notified the guest that while her desired room was available, they had plenty of other excellent rooms at the same price. The guest declined the offer, stating that the spirits visit her in that room, and she'd like another visit with them. Apparently, a lady in a beautiful ball gown would often glide into the room and stay for a while, likely a person who had attended the opening night gala in 1913. In 1989, the kitchen staff were washing up in the middle of the night, it was just two employees drying and putting away dishes, too tired to make any conversation. That's why they were able to hear clinking coming from the dining room. They poked their heads into the doorway and saw a man sitting at the table enjoying a very fine meal and dressed up and down in an elegant suit. They stared in shock for a moment, then ran to fetch the assistant manager. Upon their return, the three employees found nothing but empty chairs at empty tables with not a crumb among the place setting where they had seen their guest. The hotel manager herself had retired to bed one night in her private suite. She crawled under the covers and closed her eyes, relaxing and slowly drifting off. She was jolted awake by the sound of her door opening, footsteps, and then the feeling of someone sitting down on her bed at her feet. Thinking it was her husband who was staying with her, she opened her eyes and smiled. Her smile quickly faded, though, as she looked around the empty room. 
The most famous ghost, though, has to be from room 202. Any of those quick Google searches will tell you that. Room 202 is where a woman committed suicide after her husband died in a car accident. She was quite distraught for the whole day, and the staff found her the next morning hanging inside the room's closet. Since then, staff especially have occasionally noticed blood dripping down the walls. Guests have reported a woman in a dark coat at the foot of their bed, and a former Ontario MP claimed that she was awoken by someone getting into her bed on two separate occasions. Staff and guests alike have also seen the woman from room 202 crying softly in the lounge downstairs, and pacing the hallways of the second floor at night, so it's clear she gets around. Uniquely, a young boy was fascinated with the stories of room 202, and took photos all throughout his trip to Winnipeg, including many inside the hotel room hoping to catch something on film. When he had the film developed, he was disappointed at first to see that all his photos had developed except for any picture taken inside the hotel room. Those were all black. Then he figured that those undeveloped photos were evidence enough that his stay in the room hadn't gone unnoticed, and walked away very happy with his discovery. If you're looking for a haunted holiday, the Hotel Fort Gary in Winnipeg can certainly cater to your wishes with ghosts all throughout its rooms and halls. Ghosts aside, though, it is a very nice place to stay if you're in town, and many people check in every month with no intention of encountering a spirit during their stay. That doesn't always work out for them, of course. The response to which might manifest in the form of requests to switch rooms or early checkouts. There's not much you can do otherwise if you're staying in a haunted hotel room. You're kind of just stuck with what you've got. The hotel staff won't usually be much help, and beyond them, who are you going to call? Not Bill Murray, apparently. Our last story today involves a very peculiar account from an RCMP officer which never made it into the official records. Indeed, it was only told after he had retired. There are a lot of loose ends to it, as there are with most ghost stories, but there are some loose ends here with this podcast that I'd like to tie up before we begin the final tale. First, I would like to acknowledge that these stories are not my own nor are they collected by Discover the Past walking tours. The stories you heard today are from various websites and public forums, as well as from the following books. Prairie Ghosts, True Manitoba Ghost Stories, by Lois Forsberg, published in 1998 by ELF Publications and available on Amazon and abebooks.com. Ghost Stories of Manitoba, by Barbara Smith, published in 1998 by Lone Pine Publishing, and available on Amazon, Chapters Indigo, and LonePinePublishing.com. Great Canadian Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published in 2018 by Touchwood Editions, and available online through Amazon and Chapters Indigo, or in stores wherever fine books are sold. True Canadian Ghost Stories by John Robert Colombo, published in 2003 by Prospero Books, and available online through Amazon, Chapters Indigo, abebooks.com, and dundurn.com. You should be able to find this podcast on discoverthepast.com under the podcast tab, and on the home site of ghoststoriesofcanada.podbean.com. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, 
Google Play Music and Apple Podcasts. It would be incredibly kind and helpful of you to leave us a rating and review. The more reviews and the higher ratings we get, the more people we can reach with these stories. If you don't know what to say in the review, consider writing, I learned who Frederick Philip Grove was today, all thanks to this podcast. Or something like that. The music for the podcast was written and recorded by yours truly. My name is Zach, and I am one of the guides for Discover the Past Ghostly Walks. Our next episode will be released Thursday, July 25th, and will take us up north to the territories. My goal is for it to be a Nunavut-only episode, but we'll see if we can find enough stories to justify a whole episode. We might have to do a combined one with the Northwest Territories. In either case, it should be an excellent one and well worth a listen. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, head on over to discoverthepast.com. All throughout the summer, we run historical walking tours every day at 10.30 a.m. and 2 o'clock p.m. Everything from Emily Carr-centered tours to guided walks through Canada's oldest Chinatown. Our specialty tours, however, are in the evening. Every night of the week, we run our ghostly walks. We have eight different routes, a different route at 7.30 p.m. for every night of the week, and then our classic route every night at 9.30 p.m. All our tours are 90 minutes long and start at 812 Wharf Street outside the Visitor's Information Center. The only exception is our Chinatown History Walk, which starts at 1689 Government Street outside the Starbucks. We would certainly love to see you out on one of our tours. As I was saying at the beginning of the episode, the farther you remove yourself from civilization and the more isolated you become, the more vulnerable you are for encounters such as the one that follows. It can be a dangerous world out there as it stands, but when you throw in the paranormal and the danger it can present, it makes one very grateful for the home that they live in now. this podcast, I have been steering away from sharing stories that come from Native communities or that include elements of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit cultures for a few reasons. One of them is that many of the recorded stories use antiquated language and viewpoints concerning Indigenous peoples. Another is that this is Ghost Stories of Canada, and many Indigenous peoples may not feel that their stories are part of the fabric that makes up the colonial framework of this country. A third still is that I am not the person who should be sharing these stories. With this in mind, I'm going to make an exception for this episode. The objective of this story is not to mystify the image of First Nations peoples, nor is it to perpetuate any sort of boogeyman concept, but when one speaks of lands that have become resting places for human beings, there is always a layer of sacredness to them, and sometimes uneasiness. 
there's the whole trope that you wouldn't want to build your house on top of a native burial ground, which makes sense, but you just as likely won't want to build your house on top of an English cemetery either. This is most certainly a story that deals with human beings in their two most raw stages, life and death. It was the 1970s in the Pa. Norm Duncan had become a little concerned about a son David who was prone to drinking and fighting. Rather than letting him continue down his errant path, Norm decided to step in and take David for an overwinter trapping trip to Deer Lake. David was surprisingly willing to come along, perhaps looking forward to spending some quality time with his father. In any case, off they went for the winter. In the spring, Norm returned alone with this story to tell. Once the father and son had gotten settled into their cabin and laid out their traps, they soon discovered that every day Norm would return with his arms full of furs and David would return with nothing but his tools. David's traps were always empty despite plenty of animal tracks around them. David was no slouch either. He could set a trap as well as anyone he knew. Therefore, he reasoned, somebody had been stealing his furs before he could get to them. To prove his point, David reported having seen smoke rising over the treetops and deduced that the thief had set up a cabin nearby across the river. He planned to pay a visit to this mystery man and duke it out, taking back his furs on his way out. Norm, whose intent behind this trip was to encourage David to turn his life around, managed to calm his son down and convince him to use his words rather than his fists. David agreed, but both men went out the next day just in case David had a change of heart. They took their boat out onto the water and motored up the river until they arrived at an old shack. David hustled out of the boat, ran up to the door, and began pounding on it. Norm sighed. So much for using his words. As Norm stepped up to the shack to join his son, the door opened and an old, frail First Nations man answered. Possibly Sue or Cree, the story doesn't say. Somewhat taken aback, David managed to ask very calmly if the old man had stolen his furs, although he doubted that they had found the culprit. The old man shook his head and responded that he hadn't stole the furs, or even been out on that part of the land, nor would he ever go there to trap. The land there was sacred. Many of his ancestors were buried there and would not permit for successful hunting or trapping in that space. His only further comment was that his two visitors must respect the land. As the Duncans walked back to their boat, David exclaimed that he didn't think the man had stolen the furs, but he also didn't buy into any old superstition. Norm disagreed. He figured that there probably was something to what the old man had said, and suggested that they simply work the other line, on the opposite side of the cabin, away from where they had been instructed to avoid. Winter came and went, and by springtime the two had collected so many furs that the boat wouldn't hold them all. Norm ended up taking as much as he could on the boat and made downriver for the Pa. David would tote the rest back on foot and would arrive in town in two weeks' time. Well, Norm made it home safely and waited for over a month before it was clear that David had run into some kind of trouble. Norm kept thinking back to that area where they had been told never to trap and knew in his heart that David had wandered through for some last-minute trapping. He alerted the Mounties, then went off to search for his son, providing the authorities with an expected return date, which, of course, passed by with no sign of him. 
A Mountie was then charged with going off and finding the two Duncans, and he set off in a floatplane on what became a weekend he would never forget as long as he lived. The Mountie landed at the cabin, telling the pilot to pick him up in a couple of days at the same spot. Once the plane had left, leaving him all alone in the forest, the Mountie began inspecting the cabin and the clearing around it. He very quickly discovered a very dusty cabin and a very rusty boat, both of which had belonged to the Duncans, but neither of which had been very recently used. Pushing the boat into the river, the Mountie hopped in and began paddling along the shore until he came across an old shack, likely the old man's from Norm's story, and yet upon inspection the shack was extremely worn down and showed no signs that anyone had inhabited it in several years. The Mountie ventured uphill from the river for a better vantage point of the land around him. As he climbed, he couldn't shake the awful feeling that he wasn't alone, indeed, that he was being watched. That was ridiculous. The woods were empty. If anyone was watching him, it was probably Norm or David. He stopped and called out, but to no avail. Finally, he reached the top of the hill and scanned around. That's when he saw the tree. The old birch had been stripped of wood, and something bright red was dangling from its branches. The Mountie rushed off to inspect what was there, and as he got closer, he noticed all his hairs were standing on end. He had goosebumps up and down his arms, and there was an uneasiness to the air around him. He knew what he was about to find, and the birch did not disappoint. David Duncan's body was hanging from the tree, or at least what was left of the body. It was almost entirely decomposed, and had been picked apart by the elements and animals. There was little that remained save for bones and clothing. What could have done this to the poor man? The Mountie began to pace, again uncomfortable with the feeling that he was being observed from deep in the trees. He circled the birch tree and noticed his second missing person, Norm. Norm was lying at the base of the tree, partially obscured by roots and some bushes. He had a large gash in his boot, and next to his body was an axe. It was clear what had happened. Norm had discovered his son's corpse hanging from the trees. With nothing left but to plant him in the earth, along with the generations upon generations of other persons who had lived in these parts, Norm had intended to cut his son down, but missed, laying the blade into his foot. There was no way of surviving that injury, and Norm would have known it. He pulled out the axe and lay down next to the tree, hoping the end would be quick. He would have bled out next to the bones of his son. The Mountie had better luck than the father for whom he had been searching. He managed to give the two a proper burial at the tree, took the axe, and set off for the boat. When he reached it, a curious sensation overwhelmed him. Before he knew it, he had kicked the boat out into the river where it drifted away. It appeared that the Mountie was walking back to the cabin. That whole night the Mountie tossed and turned, visions of his gruesome discovery floating through his mind, and not once was he able to shake the feeling that someone or some ones had followed him back to the cabin where he took shelter. It was a long day and another long, isolated night, before the plane's motor hummed off in the distance, the sound of heaven's trumpets themselves for all the Mountie cared. The pilot greeted him and asked what the Mountie had learned. 
He replied, saying there was no sign of either man. Perhaps they could do a few circles in the area to search from above before returning to the Pa. It was while they were up in the air that the pilot gave a small shout and pointed down into the river. A boat, the Duncan's boat, was floating upside down in the rapids. The pilot suggested the most reasonable explanation was that the two had fallen out and drowned. It was best that they simply head home and forget about the whole thing. The Mountie agreed. Thank you.